0: Section 2 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 22 Malplaquet and After. The French were now preparing for a great effort. The spirit of the country was thoroughly roused, and King Louis well knew. That despite all the prevailing hardships and poverty, he could rely upon his people to support him in what he hoped might prove the final struggle. The policy of the French sovereign was now directed merely to an enforcement of the terms which he had already offered to the Allies and the abandonment on their part of the conditions which they had endeavored to force upon him in his hour of extreme necessity. No one knew better than Marlborough how much the population of France had suffered during the exhausting war thus far, and no one felt more certain than he that King Louis was preparing for a decisive and tremendous struggle. Marlborough's policy continued to be just what it was before the futile negotiations for peace had set in. It was the policy represented by the siege and capture of Lille. Marlborough's plan was to force his way into the heart of France, to leave no French stronghold uncaptured which came between him and his line of advance, and to hold his course until he could dictate terms of peace in the French capital. With this object in view, he used all his influence to convince his government that he must have additional troops sent out to him, and he succeeded in this demand, although at the time, Queen Anne's advisers were already thinking that it might be safe to recall some regiments from the field. The Dutch allies were also persuaded or coerced by him to send some additional force to his assistance, and he had at last got an army of more than 100,000 men under his command. King Louis entrusted the command of the French troops to Marshal Villard, the general who had done so much by his military skill and by his generous clemency, to bring to something like a peaceful conclusion the insurrection of the Commissaire. Marshal Boufflet, who had won the admiration of Prince Eugène and of all the civilized world besides, by his splendid defense of Lille, was senior in rank to Villars, but promptly offered to serve under his command, and this action on his part, gave one other impulse to the enthusiasm of the French army. There were three strong fortresses which stood immediately in the way of the advance contemplated by Marlborough. These were Tournay, Mons, and Valenciennes, and it was naturally the business of Villars to maintain these strongholds to the last possible moment. Marlborough began his movement By one of his characteristic stratagems, he directed an advance in such a manner as to mislead the enemy. He made as if he contemplated a direct attack upon the main army of Villars, and Villars was deceived by the movement. The French commander apparently made up his mind that if the first attack were to be directly on him and on his main army, it was his duty to strengthen that army at whatever risk. Accordingly, he withdrew at a moment's notice some of the troops from Tournay, and with them strengthened his own forces in the field. This was exactly what Marlborough would have wished him to do. The Allied forces instantly made for Tournay, and by a night march succeeded in their plan for investing it. Tournay was splendidly fortified, and its defensive works had long been regarded as the noblest illustration of Vauban's engineering skill. The town was taken in about a month, but the defending forces then withdrew into the citadel, and there bravely held out for yet another month and more. The defense of the citadel was made memorable by the skill, audacity, and pertinacity with which the besieged garrison turned to account the use and the explosion of subterranean mines to destroy successive parties of assailants. All the attempts at defense proved in vain, and there was nothing for it but to surrender. Marlborough, who, like every great general, could appreciate and admire the bravery of his opponents, paid to the defenders of the citadel the well-deserved compliment of allowing them to march out with all the honors of war. Having accomplished this success, the work which came next in the plan of the Allied forces was to get possession of Mons. But a great military event was to take place before the accomplishment of this object. This great event was the Battle of Malplaquet. In order to invest Mons, it was found to be indispensable that a passage should be made by the Allies through a part of the French lines, and to accomplish this it was necessary to cross a small river. A strong force under the Prince of Hesse was entrusted with the execution of this part of the general plan, and the work was successfully carried out. The Prince of Hesse and his men succeeded in finding a place which was not effectively occupied by the French lines, and they were able to pass the river at some distance above Mons itself, and thus to come between the town and the French. The prince and his force then invested the town on the southern side. This movement was accomplished without any serious difficulty and almost without the notice of the French commanders, and it might have been of the most signal advantage to the Allies. A portion of the Allied forces was thus established between Mons itself and that part of the country into which the French, if defeated in open battle, would naturally endeavor to make a retreat. Marshal Villar found himself compelled either to abandon Mons or to risk everything on a battle. Marlborough was in favor of undertaking the battle at once. A division of opinion among the Allies took place here, Such a division of opinion, as had on many a former occasion, led to a delay in the onward movement. Marlborough wished, above all things, to strike a blow at once and give the French forces no opportunity of establishing themselves in a strong position. The Dutch commissioners were in favor of delay, because there was an expectation that some reinforcements would soon come up from before tournay and the Dutch, did not believe that the Allied army was strong enough just at that time to risk a decisive battle. All through the campaigns in this region of the war, the Dutch allies had been cautious about general engagements and had set themselves as far as they could against any movement which seemed to involve a serious risk and might be delayed with advantage. The policy of the Dutch had been always that which is natural to a small population, a policy habitually of defense and resistance rather than one of enterprise. It had been the fate of the Netherlands in their previous history to have to contend against forces numerically far stronger than any they could bring into the field. No country in the world has ever shown a greater capacity for stubborn and untiring resistance than that of the Netherlands, but their struggle against the domination of Spain, prolonged as it had been through successive generations and victorious at last, had trained them, above all things, to a policy of defense. It is therefore not surprising, nor is it to be reckoned to the discredit of a brave and intelligent people, that the Dutch did not always, under the new conditions, throw their whole souls into such daring measures of enterprising attack as those which the genius of Marlborough was ever ready to undertake. What seemed to Marlborough the course best calculated to ensure success at a momentous crisis, often appeared to the Dutch commanders a disproportionate risk. In this particular instance, Prince Eugène, who was then, as at all times, perfectly ready to fight, was yet quite willing to listen to the counsels of the Dutch and to take the chance of waiting for the further reinforcements. Two days were thus lost to the plans of Marlborough. To those who can now calmly look back on this chapter of history, it seems perfectly clear that if Marlborough had been allowed his own way and had been supported with enthusiasm by his allies, the result would have been a complete victory, obtained without anything like the tremendous loss and sacrifice which marred the success of Malplaquet. The French forces were able to obtain by this delay the one advantage which they most desired to have. They were enabled to take up a strong position and to entrench themselves effectively, and thus to make the victory obtained by the Allies as dearly bought a triumph as the history of modern warfare records. The ground around the village of Malplaquet had at one time been a mere forest, and although much of it had lately been cleared and cultivated and made habitable, It was still thickly wooded here and there, and the troops who now occupied it had every opportunity of making their resistance strong and their defeat costly. The Battle of Montplaquet was fought on the 11th of September, 1709. It was a battle of desperate attack and desperate resistance. The French troops fought with splendid courage and with a pertinacity which at one time must have seemed well-nigh indomitable. When once the actual engagement had begun, there was little chance for strategic movement or for sudden inspirations of military genius. It was a contest of hand-to-hand fighting on a gigantic scale. The commanders on both sides certainly did not spare themselves. Marshal Villars, the French commander, received a severe wound at an early part of the engagement. He absolutely refused to be carried off the field and insisted on having a chair brought to him that he might still direct the movements of his men. The gallant marshal, however, was not allowed to carry out his brave purpose. He fainted from loss of blood and had to be borne insensible from the field of the fight. On the side of the Allies, Prince Eugène met with a somewhat similar mishap. A bullet wounded him in the head just behind the ear, but he utterly refused the urgent requests of his officers that he might retire even for a few moments and have his injuries looked to, declaring resolutely that there would be time enough to think of all that if he survived until the end of the battle and if the wound were mortal there would be no use in wasting moments over it. Marlborough himself was in a very poor condition of health on the day of the battle, and a report actually spread abroad for a while among the allies and among the enemy that the great commander had found his death upon the field. Marlborough's time, however, had not yet come. The victory was with him and his allies, but the French were able, when the day had turned decisively against them, to accomplish a retreat in good order. Marshal Villar is said to have declared when all was over that one other such defeat to the French would have meant the ruin of the English army. His words may have been meant as an adaptation of a famous classical saying, but he had good practical and present reason for his boast. The victorious allies lost in the battle more than 20,000 men, while the defeated French, who had all the advantage of their strong position, suffered a loss of hardly more than half that number. The Battle of Malplaquet was memorable in one especial sense for Marlborough and for history. Malplaquet was Marlborough's last great battle. He was a student of Shakespeare, and if he could have been favored with a glimpse into the future, he might have said, Here burns my candle out, I hear it dies, which, whiles it lasted, gave light to England and to England's victories. Under the same conditions, he might also have said again, in the words of Shakespeare, If twere now to die, twere now to be most happy. Meanwhile, the campaign on Spanish soil had been dragging on at a slow and staggering pace. The victory obtained over the Allied forces at Almansa had proved even more damaging in its effects than had been expected. So damaging had it been that it might almost be called decisive. It forced the Allies into a complete change of policy and instead of the brilliant and daring movements which had signalized on their part the earlier progress of the campaign, they appeared to have made up their minds only for defensive action, to hold their own as long as they could, and not to expose themselves to any serious risks. Lord Galway, whose command had failed so signally at Almanza, was recalled from his position and put at the head of the English troops in Portugal. The emperor was urged to give the command in Spain to Prince Eugène, who could have made something of it if anybody could, but the emperor would not remove Eugène from the field on which he was then engaged, and a sort of compromise was effected by the appointment of an English and a German commander. General Stanhope was the English commander. Stanhope, says Lord Macaulay, was a man of respectable abilities both in military and civil affairs, but fitter we conceive for a second than for a first place. The qualification is perfectly just, but at the same time it is only right to say that Stanhope had some of the best gifts of a commanding officer, that he had a thoroughly soldier-like spirit and might have rendered great service under a great commander. The German commander was Starenberg, whom Macaulay describes as a methodical tactician of the German school. It is probable that no commander endowed with less than the genius of Marlborough, or at any events less than that of Eugène, could have accomplished any great results for the Allies during this period of the Spanish campaign. The Allied armies were badly provisioned, were ill-supplied in every way, and had lost heart after the disaster of almansa the allied generals however although they were not able to do anything worthy of record on the mainland of spain were able by the sheer favour of events to obtain for their cause the accession of the island of sardinia and to effect the capture of minorca sardinia was willing and eager to declare for the archduke charles and when an English fleet was sent within sight of the island, the declaration was at once made, and the island was for the time secured to the cause of the Allies. The capture of Minorca was an actual conquest and one of great importance. The English fleet had been put to incessant trouble with the recurrence of each winter by the want of some sheltering harbor during the worst part of the year. The lack of such a shelter had compelled the fleets to return time after time to the protection of English seaports thus giving their enemies opportunities for quietly and safely repairing their strength and their defences during the interval It had long been the desire of Marlborough that Port Mahon the principal harbour of Minorca and indeed one of the very best ports in all that Mediterranean region should be taken by the allies It is a certain historical fact that Marlborough, just at the right moment, strongly urged upon Stanhope the immense importance of making a sudden effort for that purpose. The credit of the manner in which the capture was effected belongs unquestionably to Stanhope, but the original idea of attempting the capture was the inspiration of Marlborough, who, like an accomplished chess player, never allowed his mind to lose sight of any part of the board. Stanhope had no easy work to do when he set about prevailing upon the naval commanders to accept his plan for the seizure of Portman. Portman was well known to be strongly defended, and the general belief among the Allies was that those in possession of it would hold out to the very last in its defense. Stanhope had a nature and a spirit which inclined him to favor daring plans, and he seems to have made up his mind that nothing should hinder him from attempting the enterprise he had at heart. He compelled the acceptance of his project by a stroke of happy audacity. When he had explained and discussed his plans long enough, apparently without carrying conviction to the naval men whose help he needed, He withdrew from the futile debate and went to work on his own account. He had his transport vessels got into immediate preparation. He embarked his troops on board them and then dispatched a message to his naval friends announcing that he was setting out on his way to Port Man, leaving it to them to follow him or remain behind according to their inclination. It need hardly be told that the result of this message was to bring the fleet promptly to his support." It was not likely that brave naval commanders would hang back at such a time from sustaining him in his daring expedition. The work of landing his men and his artillery on the steep and rocky coast proved the hardest part of the undertaking, and it took him nearly a fortnight to accomplish this work, but once he had begun, the end of the struggle was not long delayed, and within four days Port Mon was occupied by the troops of the Allies. Stanhope was so thoroughly impressed with the importance of securing this harbor for England that he earnestly recommended the government at home not to give up their new possession to the Archduke Charles, but to retain it as their own, for the present at all events, and to hold it as a security for the repayment of the large and liberal advances which England had made to Charles for the purpose of enabling him to carry on his part of the campaign. With this object in view, Stanhope, of his own motion, filled the place with English troops only as an occupying force, and the Archduke had no choice but to put up with the arrangement. Minorca, in the course of later history, was taken from the British and retaken by them, and was captured and recaptured until it was finally handed over to Spain at the settlement of Amiens. It has a melancholy association for English readers, from the fact that in an attempt to relieve Minorca, then blockaded by a French fleet, the unfortunate Admiral Bing committed the error of judgment, which led to his being brought home under arrest, tried and convicted of neglect of duty, sentenced to death, and executed. The capture of Minorca appears to have made a decided impression on some at least of those who were engaged in maintaining the cause of France. The Duke of Berwick was no longer in command of the French forces in Spain. He had been succeeded by the Duke of Orléans, whom we have already mentioned in this history, and whose peculiar reputation has little or nothing to do with military enterprise. The Duke of Orléans was a nephew of King Louis, and was destined, after the death of that sovereign, to become regent of France. His private life was one which might fairly be described as infamous, and he is remembered as the patron and the pupil of Cardinal Dubois. The Duke of Orléans endeavored to enter into negotiations with Stanhope for the purpose of arranging a basis of settlement on which, he believed or professed to believe, a satisfactory peace could be concluded. The proposal made by Orléans was that the two rival candidates for the throne of Spain should be withdrawn, the Allies to withdraw the Archduke Charles and King Louis to withdraw Philip of Anjou. If that part of the proposal could be agreed upon, then Orléans modestly suggested that he himself might probably be regarded by the two principal disputing states as a suitable and acceptable occupant of the Spanish throne? Nothing could be more absurd than such a proposition, but from what we know of the character of the duke, it seems quite possible that it might have commended itself to his wayward and fantastic humor as a sort of compromise which would help all the disputants out of a difficulty. Orléans had in his nature some of the whimsicalities as well as the love of freakish debauchery which we commonly ascribe to the typical oriental despot. The ingenious arrangement which he suggested might have suited very well for a story after the fashion of the Arabian Nights or for a comic opera of more modern days. Stanhope, we may be sure, did not take it seriously, But for the time at least he affected to give it some consideration, and while he declared that it would not be possible for the Allies to throw over the candidature of the Archduke Charles, he suggested that means might perhaps be found of constructing out of the wreck and welter of disputed territories something like an independent kingdom, on the throne of which the genius and the ambition of Orléans might find a fitting place. Unluckily for Orléans, some knowledge of the negotiations he had opened and was attempting to carry on with General Stanhope reached the ears of men for whom it was not intended and was conveyed before long to King Louis himself. The king did not find it possible under these conditions to leave his nephew any longer in command of the French troops in Spain it was not convenient to make any public scandal about the whole business, but it was clear that the Duke of Orléans was not quite the man to represent, as head of an army, the interests of the King of France. The whole incident has to a modern reader something distinctly farcical about it. It has to be borne in mind, however, that Europe was at that time a field for the working-out of all sorts of fantastic schemes, for the setting up of new thrones and even the creation of new states. The Duke of Orléans, himself a member of a royal family, may perhaps be excused for thinking that he had as good a right as any other prince to become a candidate for a disputed throne. Stanhope showed himself through all this part of the campaign an energetic commander eager to carry out a forward policy. Until the capture of Portman, nothing of much importance had been done by the Allies in Spain since their defeat at Almansa, and Stanhope was certainly doing all that lay in his power to put an end to the long period of comparative inaction. He had succeeded, so far as to obtain from the government at home, such reinforcements as put him in command of a larger army than any which had yet displayed itself on that field of the war. He was doing his best to prevail upon Staremberg, his colleague in the control of the Allied forces, to accept his plans for active and unceasing movement. Staremberg, who was a commander of the old school, was probably of opinion that campaigning ought to have its regular alternations of activity and repose, and he does not appear to have appreciated Stanhope's idea that the enemy ought always to be kept upon the move. Bishop Burnet, who, like many other very good men, is somewhat given to discerning a sinister motive in the action of public personages whom he does not thoroughly admire, Gives it out that Staremberg had lately become jealous of Stanhope's growing reputation, and was not anxious to assist him to any increase of fame. Burnett is even of opinion that in some actual movements where the prompt cooperation of Staremberg might have secured an immediate success, the imperial general deliberately held himself aloof and allowed the plan of his colleague to become a failure. Whether this be just to Staremberg or not, it is quite certain that Stanhope had much difficulty in obtaining cordial cooperation for the policy which he desired to carry out. On one particular purpose, Stanhope had especially set his heart. The Allied forces in Spain had had their field of operations limited for a long time to the province of Catalonia. Stanhope was most anxious to break bounds and find some more extended field. There was a generous impatience in his spirit which protested against narrow limitations, and his intellect told him that the Allies could hardly pass themselves off as champions and saviors of the Spanish people if they were never to show their faces outside one single province of Spain. Stanhope made up his mind to cross into Aragon, and after a long effort he succeeded in persuading the Archduke Charles and Staremberg to accept his plan. The crossing of a river, which, during a part of its course, forms a boundary line between Catalonia and Aragon, was easily accomplished toward the close of July 1710. The Allied forces were not long without encountering an enemy. The enemy was the Spanish army, which, under the command of a brave old soldier, Villa Darias, who had already distinguished himself at Cadiz, was drawn up in battle array to resist the further progress of those who were not unnaturally regarded as invaders. Stanhope was for an immediate engagement, but his colleagues still urged counsels of caution and delay. The Spanish army did not give their opponents much time for calm consideration. The Spanish general sent forward a large force of cavalry in order to begin the engagement at once. A feeling of genuine passion went through Stanhope's ranks at the evidence thus given that the Spanish general actually found it necessary to force them into an engagement. The common thought was in every English mind that such was not the character which English armies had usually won for themselves on foreign battlefields, and probably no one in Stanhope's ranks was more passionately stirred by this feeling than Stanhope himself. Although the hour of the day was late and darkness was close at hand and night battles were not then recognized as necessary events in warlike movements, Stanhope put himself at the head of his cavalry and led a tremendous charge. No romantic story belonging to the early days of European chivalry has in it any incident more striking and more dramatic than that which belongs to the first shock of battle between these two opposing hosts. Stanhope himself encountered in hand-to-hand combat the general in command of the Spanish cavalry and dealt him one saber-stroke which left him a corpse on the battlefield. The engagement did not last long and had come to an end even before night had fallen upon the scene. The result was a complete success for the Allies. The Spanish camp was taken and the disaster to the Spanish force was so sudden and complete that all thought of further resistance was abandoned by the Spaniards without a chance, having been given to the infantry of the Allies, to take any active part whatever in the engagement. This was the Battle of Almenara, a victory for the Allies which, because of its suddenness and its instantaneous and overwhelming success, and its picturesque incidents, has won for itself a peculiar fame among the events of that long and far-divided war. Another great battle was fought immediately afterwards within sight of Saragossa, the ancient capital of Aragon. After his success at Almenara, Stanhope prevailed upon the Archduke Charles and Starenberg, although not then without some difficulty, to continue their forward movement as rapidly as possible, and he was able to cross the River Ebro without encountering any active resistance on the part of the Spaniards. The crossing of the Ebro might well have been thought to give the Spaniards a most favorable opportunity for checking the progress of the Allies, but for some reason or other, Stanhope and his forces were allowed to cross the stream without opposition. Soon the Allies encountered a Spanish army numbering some twenty-five thousand men or more, and therefore numerically greater, than the force under the joint command of Stanhope and Stadtenberg. The Spanish troops fought bravely on the whole, although there was a lack of discipline and of nerve among some of their later levies, but on the other hand the veteran Spanish regiments held out to the last with desperate tenacity. The result was a complete victory for the Allies, and that same night the Archduke Charles occupied Saragossa. The Allies had a short period of rest in the famous city, and Charles was in no particular haste to leave it and go forward. Stanhope, however, would hear of nothing but that the Allies should press on without a day's unnecessary delay and occupy Madrid itself. He had his way, the Allied forces continued their forward movement, and for the second time during the war saw themselves in occupation of the Spanish capital. If Charles had had any fond hopes that his arrival, even at the head of a victorious army, could have been welcome in the capital of the kingdom over which he claimed to rule, he must have been at once and completely undeceived by the manner of his reception in Madrid. The city was not in a position to resist his entrance, but it took good care to show that the lack of resistance did not come from any inclination toward him or his claims. Everyone who could possibly leave Madrid went out of its streets before the Allied forces had fully entered. Only those remained who had not the means of finding or paying for a residence elsewhere, and even these made every effort to prove by silent evidence that they regarded the Archduke and those with him as strangers and enemies. The Castilians remained firm to what they believed to be their national cause and Stanhope's victories could not conquer the heart of Spain. Meanwhile, events were going on at home, which must have filled the minds of English commanders on the fields of war with melancholy misgivings as to the practical value of their best efforts. The reception given to the Archduke Charles by the capital of Spain was not in itself more significant than some of the demonstrations of public opinion which were engrossing the attention of London and of many another great English city. End of Section 2